Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. My guest today was a th- was 32 years old when he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis 42 years ago. At the time, there were no disease-modifying medications or drugs out there for MS, and MRIs were just then coming on scene for diagnostics. Despite little information available at the time on living with MS, he was determined to carry on with his life and not let MS get in his way. He's the author of the Multiple Sclerosis Toolbox, Tools and Tips for Living with MS. Ed Tobias, thanks so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today, sir. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. You know, it's very interesting. We, we probably share a similar journey because my I should have been diagnosed 20 years before I finally got diagnosed. We'll talk about that in a minute. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, Ed, and, and your career before you retired? Well, it's almost 10 years that I've been retired now. It seems like almost yesterday. Mm-hmm. I worked in broadcast news for uh, just about all of my career. Most of it uh, radio, uh, most of it for the Associated Press, um, 32 years, in fact, with the uh, Associated Press, and uh, most of that was uh, planning news coverage, uh, going to places, uh, setting up uh, remotes, uh, deciding what we would cover, who would cover it, uh, how we would get the data, the information, the audio, the video, the text back from wherever the location was to uh, Washington, which is where the broadcast center was. So I had the opportunity to travel a lot, uh, meet a lot of interesting people, uh, and do some uh, on-air work as well. Wow. So really, really, really great. Now, so when did you first start noticing some of those telltale symptoms of MS? It was prior to my diagnosis in 1980. Uh, I noticed some things, and my wife also noticed some things. Um, my wife noticed that when I was going down ski runs, I would always tire out before she would. And she just figured I wanted to get back into the lodge and have a Bloody Mary and uh, Mm. make it easy uh, rather than ski. But uh, it was, in fact, my legs getting tired. But I didn't realize that there was a reason for this. Uh, Finally, one day, uh, I was brushing my teeth in the morning. uh, And with my left hand, I couldn't squeeze the tube of toothpaste. And that said to me, hey, there's something not right here. At the same time, I don't remember if it was the precise, precisely the same day or not, but you know, back in the late 70s, we had a lot of hair. At least some of us had a lot of hair. Yeah, yeah. And I used a blow dryer, and I couldn't hold the blow dryer. So that started the diagnostic process. Um, and back then, I must, I, I will tell you that you know it was pretty similar because. You know, I was at the Naval Academy from 76 to 1980, and I really started just noticing some odd things. I can't put a finger on them, can't tell you what they were. They were odd enough. I, I kept having mine, which is very interesting that you didn't seem to have this as one of your early symptoms, but I had some visual acuity issues, which seems to be something that happens to about 60 to 70% of us when it starts is that you start to get some sort of optic neuritis, optic neuropathy, something going on in the eyes. And I started noticing like when I was, you know, I was at the Naval Academy, so I was running. I I also was a boxer and I was running quite a bit. And I started noticing that just, just, it was weird. Like after I run a mile, maybe a mile and a half, started noticing that, you know, my vision got a little blurry and I just thought that was sweat running in my eyes, literally. I started wiping my eyes and you know, and then I started noticing some odd things. Again, I was a boxer, and um, once while running, like I tripped, hit a curb, boom, hit the ground, um, and ended up, uh, you know, having to have a knee operation and all kinds of stuff, not recognizing that it was this blindness that was going on, on the left side of my body. I literally was going blind in my left eye. And it continued all the way up until I graduated from the academy in 1980. Got really, really, really bad right before graduation. So bad that I ended up being put on a medical hold there for a minute because, but again, in the 80s, MRIs were just now starting that, well, 1980, 1979, 1980, MRIs were just now becoming part of the fabric of medicine. And we had such, you know, early versions of them. The Tesla strength was so low 
that um, and and every doctor read them differently. Um, and you couldn't read one MRI from one machine to another MRI and another machine. So um, I went misdiagnosed. I probably should have been diagnosed in 1980, but went misdiagnosed for 20 years, my friend. Um, well, not for me. I was I was very fortunate. Let me mention visual. Uh, I had one visual symptom, which never appeared again for in the past 40 some odd years. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, we were preparing. At that time, I was working for the old news station, WTOP. Sure. And uh, the Pope was visiting uh, D.C. And I was on my way to work on the setup for the Pope on the mall. And I was going through, uh, I think, Scott Circle. And I went through a red light that I never saw because my peripheral vision had narrowed. It was off to my right. And there was, uh, I just didn't see it until I had actually gone through it. And I realized I'd gone through it. And wouldn't you know, on 14th Street there, there was a cop sitting going the other direction. And he makes a, a U-turn. And, but I know that I went through the red light, so I pulled over and just waited for him he explained the situation and talked my way out of it oh wow never never happened again well crazy mine is that's still one of the symptoms that i have now if i overexert um i'll get a little blurriness on my left side but but right before my graduation from the academy i literally almost went blind in my left eye my vision was almost 2600 uh had been 2020 and um at a muscatoma, which is that hole in your vision, just grew really big. So mine was not peripheral. It was more in the center. I had this area in the center. I could see all the periphery, but I really couldn't see in the middle um, out of my left eye. I didn't notice it because, again, you got both eyes. So my right eye was compensated for it. But it would it would just come and go, come and go, come and go. And then finally it went away. Um, and my vision came back to 2080. And stayed that way, but my scotoma in my left eye, which is the hole in your vision left eye, has been plotted as being excessively large um, ever since. And I literally went back and forth to doctors for 20 years, completely being misdiagnosed. But go ahead. You know, I was I was very lucky because I was married, still I'm married, to a woman who was a physical therapist. And she was the chief PT at Georgetown Hospital. Gotcha. And so I was in there and um, being examined by doctors and <laughs> my wife's boss, a physiatrist, uh, examined me and tested my reflex with a little hammer and tapped my knee and my knee went boing. Right. Right out, kicked her in the stomach. Mm. And um, the diagnosis went fairly quickly from there. But again, no MRI. What they did with me was they sucked, soaked me in a hot tub. Did they do, do that with you? No, I didn't get the hot tub. As a matter of fact, it was like 80. I, I, I went from the Academy to Walter Reed to Bethesda, Johns Hopkins even. Um, and they sent me to the Wells Eye Clinic, the Wilmer Eye Clinic in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and when I was there, there was one doctor, I'll never forget it, who came in after looking at an MRI and looking at my visual scan and said, you know, anybody in your family ever had something called MS or any kind of neurological disease? And I said, no, because nah, I, I couldn't figure out, hey, this can't be that. Because at the time, I was walking around at about 210, had a 28-inch waist. I was a bodybuilder. I was a powerlifter. You know, I looked like a walking, you know, uh, Neanderthal. And um, I think just my the power of my visual and, and my, my intensity of my attitude I basically talked them out of it. I said, there is no way I have MS. I, I couldn't have a disease like that. And at the time, I honestly only thought he was talking about MD. I didn't even know he was talking about MS. So I was like, I can't have any. Any guy said, yeah, you're probably right. And left, let it go. And from that point on, from 1980, till I got out of the service, which was, you know, I, I was in been uh, prior enlisted before I went to the Naval Academy. So I ended up, Coming off active duty in '89, coming out of uh, went in the reserves until '91. Then I went to inactive reserves until uh, really it was 2006. I or so no, until '96. 
I really, um, I saw doctors who just literally would, they thought MS was the strange, could not have been anything in my, my Rolodex. It wasn't in my, my plan. So they completely misdiagnosed me and I stayed on active duty going in and out of doctors constantly with some weird little neurological episodes, you know? As I'm sure you know, you're not, un, you're not unusual. A lot of people not. who uh, I, uh, people with MS who I am in contact with via my website or the uh, blog that I write um, uh, take a long time to be diagnosed. And interestingly, from what you said, a lot of them, <laughs> a lot of them have it picked up by some type of a, uh, an eye doctor. Right. Those right. are the guys that seem to spot it, even when the, the neuros don't. And yeah. neuro specialist, uh, is a good chance, uh, you, you know, it may not happen. Yeah. Back then, I mean, I, I, I was told that, you know, a lot of times uh, MS was finally diagnosed by those who were in the optic field rather than neurologists because, you know, there's some strange things that can happen back there in the cone of your, your um, uh, eye that, um, that eye doctors can see. Well, tell me how that, uh, when you were diagnosed, I mean, how did that uh, change your life? It's going to sound strange, but it didn't. It affected my wife more than it affected me because she knew what MS could mean, right. especially back then when there were no DMTs. Uh, uh, I didn't really comprehend it. And I just figured, well, we'll see how it goes. I, I can remember only asking my neurologist one question at the time. I must have asked him more, but there's one that sticks out. And it was, is this going to shorten my life? Is my lifespan going to be any different? And he said, Probably not much. He used the figure that they still use today of about five to seven years. And I don't understand why that hasn't changed in terms of lifespan, but that's another story. And, and you I'm know, and it's really kind of crazy. Years, I was 32 years old. I can handle, you know, five years less on, on my life. I, you know, it was a long life I had ahead of me. Now at age 74, <laughs> right. you know, who knows how much I have down the road. Well, you know, I, I will tell you, I, I work with, I've talked to some doctors who were part of those studies that came up with those numbers who now say that they wish they had never, ever, ever said that. Because I literally, there was a report back from when I was finally diagnosed, which was 2000, I saw a neurologist who said that, you know, that I don't know if you know this or not, but African-American men are probably the worst category when it comes to MS and you know, you could see anywhere from a 10 to 15% reduction in your life expectancy. And I'm like, is the first things out of your mouth? Dude, you don't even know me. I walked in the door. You're going to tell me I'm going to die that early. Well, if I had died when he said I was, if I was going to die, when he said I was going to die, I should have died three or four years ago. And well, you and me both. Yeah. You know, so come on now. I mean, I, I wish that's the one thing about this disease that I often say, I mean, if, if these doctors were gods, none of us would be sick. If they really truly had a crystal ball, they'd be able to figure out and pinpoint the the date that they'd find a cure, and they can't do that either. So, you know, I I, I take I take some of what they say, a hundred percent. Other parts of what they say, I take it with a grain of salt and throw it out the window. You have to, um, and you have to choose your doctor. If you're able to choose your doctor, you have to choose very carefully, uh, because a key to living with MS. And I know I don't say battling with MS because I don't feel that I have ever battled my MS. I get angry with it sometimes. I get frustrated with it. But I don't battle it every day. I live with it. And part of living with my MS uh, has been um, the doctors that I've had. And I've been very fortunate in having a, a wonderful uh, neurologist who sees me as her partner. And I see her and trust her as my partner. But from what others with MS tell me and write me, uh, they, they aren't as lucky. Um, they're lucky to have 10 or 15 minutes with the neurologist. If the neurologist uh, isn't a specialist, uh, he or she may be dealing with uh, 20 or 25-year-old medications uh, and may not have uh, an idea at all of what your lifestyle is like. Uh, what, uh, whether you have uh, a problem sticking yourself in the leg with a needle uh, to treat yourself, or whether your uh, job 
won't allow you to uh, get an infusion once a month, take the day off for that. Um, I wish there were more. That's, that's one of the reasons why I, I do what I do. Absolutely. I think, you know, it, it, you would think that, I mean, I've been in this journey like you for 40 years plus, and you would think that by now doctors would have come together with a collective base of knowledge, but it is so extreme depending on who you talk to, depending on who they talk to, depending on what part of the country you live in, what region you live in, whether or not, you know, which pharmaceutical rep has been through the office before you got there is basically the choice that you get sometimes of what they put you on from a medication standpoint. So I think it's one of those diseases that, you know, until, and again, in, you know, some of our support organizations haven't done us big favors because, you know, in recent years, there hasn't been, you know, one definitive survey to talk about how many people in the United States truly have MS. But the numbers are probably in the four or five million range, six million range, rather than this under a million that they keep touting as the number. And I can remember it's so crazy. I haven't seen the number change since I got diagnosed. And I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, especially with the diagnostic process that we have uh, today, as opposed with uh, even 10 years ago, certainly uh, 40 years ago. Uh, and now, you know, what we're probably going to find out in, within the next 10 years, I think, is the fact that what doctors have put in that catch-all category of MS may end up being more than one individual disease. There may be a few different names that they should have given to this. Not, I'm not talking about progressive, primary progressive. Uh, I'm talking about three, maybe two different diseases. There is a type of MS that some people have, and there's a type of MS that other people have, and a type of MS that other people have. And until we actually distinguish those, I don't think that we'll re really reach a plot, plot, place where we can categorically help to treat it as well as we should be. I don't like the names that they use. Uh, elapsing, primary progressive, secondary progressive. Yeah. Um, even those have subcategories as far Absolutely. as uh, our progression. Uh, it doesn't matter what it's called. Eventually, it's going to progress. It's a matter of rather sooner or rather later. Um, and how much treatment you have and what kind of treatment you have. And uh, there, are, there are so many factors. But I, when you say maybe a whole bunch of uh, diseases in the same ball, I think the research that's being done about the Epstein-Barr virus and the fact that everybody with MS or 90 some odd percent of people who are diagnosed with MS are carrying the virus, um, yeah. which is a, large, a larger number than the general population. And that may give us that opportunity and also give us the opportunity, I hope, for a vaccine. If they can find a vaccine that's going to cure Epstein-Barr, then maybe that's going to cut down on the number of people with MS. Absolutely. And I think, you know, but again, they've got to get out of their own way. I mean, I think that's been part of the problem is that, you know, there's a subset of doctors out there who are just literally, they act as if they think they know everything and they really don't as much as they, they claim to, I don't believe that they really, you know, again, if they were, were gods, none of us would be sick. So until we get some sort of consensus, I've been working with doctors all over the world. I'm working with people from Nobel Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, to Harvard, to, to Johns Hopkins, to UC San Francisco. Um, and you can get a different opinion from almost any of them at one point in time. Um, you know, there's a lot of research being done in the Northeast about, you know, gut biome, uh, you know, what's going on there. There's a lot of research being done in Europe about, you know, um, again, Epstein-Barr and some of the other viruses that we may not even have named yet. I mean, that may be one of the things that's so strange about MS is the fact that it affects everybody so differently. And, you know, when you look at the scarring of the brain and you look at the, 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 uh, the sclerosis of the brain, that kind of tells you that because it is so different in, in so many cases, there's something else going on here that we've not really put our foot on, put our hand, our fingers on. I'm working with a doctor in the Northeast who's been talking about the fact that you can look at MS 
if you if you look at it from a Eastern medication standpoint, some some places in in the Far East they believe that there is some small viral thing that's going on inside of our bodies that our bodies are chasing from a um, immunosuppressant standpoint going after. And that's what's leaving the scars in the brain, trying to catch that little virus. And, you know, until we figure this out, I think it's, you know, we're still a couple of years away from finding the true answers myself. I hope it's just a couple. I hope so too. Now, have you seen your illness progress over the years? Um, and, and how has it progressed? Um, very slowly at first, faster uh, later on. For the first 15, 20 years, I would say, uh, you'd hardly notice that I had MS. Right. Uh, I'd get fatigued sooner than other people, um, hauling equipment around uh, the world, radio equipment, uh, took more effort than uh, for other people. Uh, but I, I was walking. Um, I was playing athletics to, to some extent. I was playing tennis for, for a while, as I think, you know, this is how most people start out. Um, after a while, I tripped too many times. Got it. Um, and that made me get a cane, but just a fold-up cane so I could stick it in my briefcase and hide it when, uh, when I wasn't using it. But if I was walking from the metro in Washington to the parking lot, uh, I'd unfold the cane and uh, I would walk. Um, then that uh, progressed to occasionally using a scooter. Uh, one of the things um, that I was fortunate enough to uh, cover during my career was uh, presidential pol political conventions, um, both parties. And that's a, a whole other podcast for you, the difference between the two political conventions. Oh, sure. How they appear. Uh, but, you know, those are in big places, Madison Square Garden, the Staples Center, uh, and the like. And our chief engineer um, at AP Broadcast suggested to me, well, why don't you rent a, a scooter for this convention? And I did, and it was like a, another world. Eventually, I uh, bought my own, and it made life an awful lot easier. Well, then I went, uh, and we're now probably around 2,000, I'd say. So that's uh, halfway through my, my disease course. Then I went to um, a Bioness electronic stimulator, which okay. I stuck on my leg, and it sends a little electrical impulse down the, uh, the nerve and allows my left ankle to flex up so that the toes raise up when I walk and the foot doesn't drag and I don't trip. And then eventually to two canes uh, with that. Now today, I am... Uh, using a scooter 95% of the time. I don't use it at home. Got I it. don't use it uh, to walk, oh, I, I say about 100 steps, 100 or a little more than 100 steps. So I guess that would probably equate to about 300 feet, 100 yards. That would be my maximum walking with the Bioness and two canes. Got uh, but I travel all over the place. I have two scooters. Um, one, uh, a larger one for use around the neighborhood, and uh, a smaller one that I can fold up like a baby carriage, only weighs 35 pounds, that has a lithium battery, and that's been on trains and boats and planes and all over the world with me. Uh, because uh, people say, well, don't you feel you should have been using your body rather than losing it? Um, and yeah, but eventually it became obvious that I was losing too much and it became so much easier to live with the mobility aid. Absolutely. My job and to play and to travel. So uh, so what if I, I look uh, funny with the scooter? My grandkids yeah. love to ride on my lap on the scooter. Absolutely. I can walk the dog with the scooter. Um, I, I even, with the two canes, I helped teach my grandson to walk when he was very young. He would hold on to the canes. And I would walk with the canes, and he would walk. I'd walk sort of backwards with the canes, and uh, it helped me live my life. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with using mobility aids, especially if you need them. You know, Why did you decide to write your book, sir, called The Multiple Sclerosis Toolbox? Because people, especially newly diagnosed with MS or who think they have MS, uh, need some help 
because as we've uh, discussed already, too many physicians aren't giving them that help. Uh, they're not, the patient isn't listened to. Uh, the doctor spends 15 minutes with the patient. Uh, and the thing that drives me up a wall is neurologists who will say, okay, here are three medications. Here are three pamphlets of medications. Uh, study, do your research on the internet, what I call the dangerous doctor internet, and uh, come back to me and you decide which one you want. Right. Well, tell me which one you think I should use and why. And tell me the pros and tell me the cons. Tell me how it's going to fit into my life and we'll make this decision uh, together. Uh, so I tried to put together a book uh, very similar to what I do on the Multiple Sclerosis Today web and Multiple Sclerosis News Today website. It's a horrible URL, but I didn't pick it out. Somebody else's uh, site mm -hmm. um, or my blog. Um, it's to try to help people understand about tests, about um, medications. I mean, when you have 20 medications or more now that are available um, to slow the progress of this disease, and some are much better than others, and some have much uh, a, high, a higher number of side effects than others. I want some guidance. Uh, I want to know what you as a professional um, would recommend, and as I said, and, and why. Uh, so I tried to take the knowledge that I gained over my 40 plus years, along with my journalistic talents, um, and combine them with the information that I know people are looking for from what I see on websites, on Facebook sites, on Twitter, uh, and give them that information. Uh, it might be about travel. It might be about how to deal with your MS during a disaster if you have to evacuate. It might be about relationships. It might be about uh, travel. It's all of the things that you're not getting and more that I felt people needed. Uh, certainly, and, and, and the, book again is for, the book is again is for those who have been diagnosed, those who think they might get diagnosed, and those who have been diagnosed for years, right? I, yes, and I had a very good review on a website recently that said this is a book that be that should be in every neurologist's office. That, that's, that's the key. If I can help that neurologist in helping a person with MS, that's what it's all about as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, and again, the takeaways that people can expect from your book is information on just about everything that you might question when it comes to MS, right? Uh, there are 13, 14 chapters. I wrap my knowledge um, with my own experiences, my experience being diagnosed, driving through the red light, my uh, experience in uh, dealing with four different DMTs. I was on the original uh, phase three clinical trial for Avonex. I got the placebo, unfortunately. Fortunately, the results were so good that they shortened the trial and they put me right on it. Uh, then I went to Tysabri, had a problem uh, with PML because, sorry, let me rephrase that. I had a problem with the JCV virus titer. My level, I was JCV positive and my level continued to rise up. Uh, so I was only on that for about seven years. Uh, then uh, went to Obagio, and then finally the big daddy of them all, Lemtrata. Uh, and it's been now a little more than five years, I guess five and a half years since my first Lemtrata infusion. Um, has it helped me? I think it's um, I think it slowed my disease progression a little bit. Uh, certainly not totally. I think also that uh, it's helped my symptoms a little bit. I think my bladder and bowel symptoms are better. Um, and that also helps me sleep better at night, which helps my fatigue a little bit. So all of these experiences uh, are combined uh, with the technical knowledge about tests and the diagnostic process uh, and the medications. There's a list of all of them, and I keep trying to keep the book updated uh, so that you know 
what each uh, medication does, uh, whether it's low efficiency, uh, medium, or high efficacy, um, and um, the means of uh, um, how it's used, uh, shot, pill, infusion. Yeah, I've been, I have been, fortunately for me, I, I have been on this, have been on the exact same medication for now 21 years. Um, uh, but I did change over from the everyday a week, everyday, everyday shot to the everyday a week shot. Um, I will say what I'm on, Copaxone. But, you know, most people need to understand, especially if they're listening in, tuning in today, is that, again, don't decide to take a drug because I'm taking it or because Ed's taking it. Take a drug because you've done your research and your doctor has put you on a drug that they think works best for you. Um, for me, you know, I shifted over to the three-day a week, Copaxone. And um, I saw no change at all in its efficaciousness. I believe that it has done a tremendous job in slowing the progression of my illness, um, without a doubt. I've been on it since the day when I've taken. It was, I, I mean, I, I took, I, one day I counted them, but I mean, I took 20 years worth of co everyday Copaxin before I shifted over to the to uh, three-day-a-week one. And um, literally... You know, I have been holding my own, though, you know, I recognize I have symptoms and there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about it. That's what they are. And I live with them. And, but, and but, let me, but, but you raise a point. And I know you're an expert in this field from the patient standpoint, certainly, uh, and that's medical marijuana. Copexone isn't trying to do the job alone. You've got the well, MMA in there. No, no, no. I, sh I should make sure I, I let people know. Copaxone didn't do the job by itself because I believe it has been, for me, it's been some of my lifestyle. You know, I, I changed my diet for a long period of time. I exercise every day. I used to exercise every day. Now I'm getting about five days a week, getting up there in the years a little bit. So some days I don't feel like doing it. Stone. It's like today I've been running all day. I got up this morning. I had an hour driving a car. I've done podcasts all day. You know, when I get done with you, I'm sorry, I'm going to go sit on the couch and watch a little news and have a little drink. Don't watch the news. That'll just stress you. Yeah, there you go. But, um, yeah, but, I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. I think that as much as MS has, I'm sorry, as a Copaxone has helped me, I am absolutely positive that having cannabinoids in my body on a, on a daily basis has also helped me. We know for a fact that uh, they are neuroprotectants. We know for a fact that the federal government's known that for the last 20 years. I have ensured that I've had at least CBD in my body every single day. And on days and occasions, I have THC and CBG, CBN. So I'm utilizing cannabinoids, I think, just as much as I'm using the Western medication. And, you know, knocking on wood, you know, I'm still hanging tough. So, um, and my progression has not seemed to increase. Um, though again, I have something now, you know, with me, I have a very, very interesting thing is like five years or four years ago, I had a major, uh, hemorrhagic stroke that normally kills 50% of the people who have it. And I fortunately am blessed that I survived that. And I give as much credit to the cannabinoids as helping me survive that as I do everything else that I've done along the way. And, um, blessedly, none of my symptoms even progressed after that for my MS. So I'm feeling good working at it. But I think that's one of the things that you said in the very beginning. Too often we go to doctors and they diagnose you and give you this doomsday report. They try to give you the worst of the worst. And I often think if they were, they had a crystal ball, then they would have seen the fact that they gave me bad information. We need to go when you're challenged with something like this, it's get busy, get busy living, get busy figuring out how you can live with your illness and how you can thrive with your illness rather than succumb to the illness the way doctors believe that you have to. Yeah, you know, uh, it's not my quote, but I quote it all the time. Life isn't about hiding from the storm. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Absolutely. Uh, and I can't say that often enough. You say you work out. Uh, I try to do the same a couple of times a week. I'm a snowbird. I'm in Maryland right now. But um, another six weeks, I'll be back in Florida. And I'll be in the swimming pool. And I'll be back in the exercise room. And uh, I'll be adding that to my medications uh, in terms of uh, uh, dancing in the rain. 
Absolutely. I mean, like with you, you just said it. when you first got diagnosed, you started noticing while you were skiing. Well, you know, I didn't play any, I'm a Marylander also. So, but I grew up never really playing any snow sports. And then when I got diagnosed with MS, I did realize one of my most severe symptoms, and it still is today, uh, MS wiped out my thermostat. I don't have a thermostat. I, I literally, I can't figure out. It's too late when I realize I've overheated. Um, I will hit the pavement and realize, oh, damn, I'm standing out. It's 89 degrees. I'm hot. But I'm on the pavement when I realize that because my body doesn't tell me I'm heating up until it's too late. So early on in my diagnosis, I did know that I was so heat sensitive. I needed to find some things to do in the cold. So different than you, instead of traveling to Florida during the winter up north, I literally for almost 16 years of my, you know, journey with this illness, I traveled to the snow. Um, Sorry, that's my puppy. That's all right. Mine's being very good. So I understand. Mine's only six, five months old. He hasn't figured it out yet. Um, But I, uh, I traveled to the snow. I learned how to snowboard and literally became a snow chaser. I chased snow all over the world for years because I felt better in the cold. I could go outside in the cold and literally snowboard from the time the lifts open till the last person on the last running lift. So I had to get back down to the lodge, you know, in the last second, 4.30, 5.30 at night, 5.30 in the evening. I, I could go, could go and still can go. If I get in the cold, I can go like the Energizer buddy. But you put me in the heat, buddy, and I am like Saranara after about 86, 87. Well, you see, that's the way it is uh, with, uh, with most people with MS. I found with uh, myself, originally, the heat would kill me. Now, the heat doesn't bother me as much, but the cold does. And the cold messes with my bladder, and the cold messes with my spasticity. Yep. Uh, but the heat, man, I could just sit in that pool or swim in that pool or hang out in that swimming pool all day long uh, or get in and out of the pool. I get too hot. I know I'm too hot, unlike you. And then I uh, jump in the pool and stay in there for a while. I come out. So it's the best of both worlds to me. I'm just fortunate that uh, I've been able to uh, to do that. Yeah, it's crazy. Like you just said, it's really weird. I, I, I've uh, I've run across a couple of other people who have the same weirdness of heat sensitivity. I mean, like I, I can, if I go to a restaurant and the restaurant has one of those, you know, glass gas fireplaces in it, not a person in the entire restaurant will feel that heat. I'm going to tell you, I can be four feet away from it. And all of a sudden I realize, oh my God, my chest is sweating. My back is sweating. My legs are sweating. So why do you live in Florida, man? I know that's really kind of ridiculous, right? That's I live in Florida to stay in the air conditioning. No, it's really kind of crazy. Uh, we moved down here years ago just to get out of New York. I was up in New York and I was like a little tired of it. So I moved down here and then, you know, but, but it down here, I got to tell you, you know, right now, the last couple of weeks, it's been staying, it stays above 87, 88. I don't go outside. I, I, I go outside at night in the dark. I go outside, I walk, you know, my wife, you know, who's put up with me blessedly. I, 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 I thank God that I have her to help me navigate this, but you know, she, I feel she, the same. Yeah, yeah, she walks my puppy, our puppy during the day. And, um, you know, hope, and then at night I try to give her some relief by when it gets around eight, eight, eight thirty, and the temperature slips back down to 79, I can go out and feel like a, a normal person. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand how you can leave New York though. I grew up in New York city. I grew up in Manhattan and man, I love New York for a little period of time now. I drove a cab in New York. So you, 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 you're, you're like my wife. She loves New York. Also, I spent 18 years there. Um, Things just started changing in the last few years. So I, I just, I wanted to get out and I, you know, I kind of ran away from the heavy tech station. So I ran down here, but um, I've been enjoying it here. We, we travel quite a bit. I like you, I, I, I was listening to you when you were talking about travel. I'm traveling quite a bit right now. As a matter of fact, I go back and forth to Massachusetts quite a bit. I have businesses there. So I'm, I'm on the road as much as I think I've, I've ever been. 
uh, you know, it, when, let's go back to your book here for a second. You know, what is one of those, what's the most helpful tip you think you gave in your book? Try to find a neurologist who will communicate with you, who will be your partner in this journey. Uh, it's probably also the most difficult one to, uh, to uh, find. Um, the other one that people will disagree with, I think, is being upfront from the very beginning about your MS. Right. Uh, it doesn't work, for, doesn't work for everybody. It has sort of worked for me. Um, not long after I was uh, diagnosed, uh, I revealed it to the staff uh, who was working for me. I was the news director at uh, a radio station at the time. And uh, I felt that they had a right to know and that my life would also be easier because they understood that occasionally I might have to take a day here or there, or I might not be able to uh, travel as much as I did. Actually, that didn't come to fruition until um, uh, many years later when I had to, to slow down. But I found that being upfront with friends, family, employers uh, has always worked very well for, for me, even when it, even when it didn't work well. If an employer didn't understand about my MS, I really didn't want to be working there anyway right. uh, because it was going to make life tough for me. So I always tried to find a place uh, where they would understand, and I was very fortunate in doing that. I think those are the two. You took my last copy of the book, though. I could leaf through it right now, but I, I sent it to you. Oh, thank you. MS, MS Fog, uh, who knows yeah. what great other great tips I might have had that I just can't think about right now. Well, I think that tip is is correct. I mean, being upfront, but, you know, mostly being upfront with yourself. I mean, you know, admitting the fact that you have something that doesn't, it's not there all the time, but you've got something that, and and I often say to people, you are your best advocate. So it behooves you to study and learn as much as you can. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's written that seems to be doomsday. However, if you read between the lines, you'll also read the fact that there is, you know, hope there and acknowledge the fact that you have issues. I mean, for the longest time, I didn't recognize how much MS affected me psychologically. You know, I, um, I had some scarring in my, the, in the brain area called the pons area of the brain, which controls something called emotional ability, which now the pharmaceutical industry decided to rename and call it pseudo bulb or effect just to give it a name so they could come up with a drug. But the truth of the matter is, you know, when we have certain scars in certain areas of our brain, you know, there is uncontrollable psychological impact, you know, and especially when it comes to this whole idea of what they call pseudo bulbar effect, which is not having limits to your highs and your lows. Um, I went probably 10 years where I wouldn't admit how severely I was affected by those high and low problems. I mean, I could literally walk outside and cry with a breeze blow if the if the, if the breeze hit me in the face the wrong way, or uh, you know, I could get angry if I saw, you know, if I dropped a pencil, and didn't realize that my anger was literally so over the top for dropping a pencil, and I wouldn't admit that that had anything to do with MS because none of the MS doctors would say anything to me about that. But the it's truth not, is, in, it's not in the book, but uh, that's something I just wrote about within the past week or so uh, on the MS News Today website on my own blog. Uh, do you laugh or cry when you shouldn't and don't know why? Uh, a friend who has MS who I uh, work with on the uh, website uh, has told me that she's cried uh, on the phone with customer service reps. Right. Well, I can understand uh, crying with a customer service rep, but, but sure. she didn't. Uh, but it was her MS uh, acting up. Absolutely. And people don't, we, we need to understand that because I want to tell you something. I, I literally, through my career, you know, sometimes people would ask me, well, you know, it's just you're, you're so emotional and, you know, you're so empathetic. And I'd say, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. But there are times when I can't control my crying. 
Um, there were times I couldn't. Now I've noticed that cannabis really does help me with that. People do not understand. It's a mood controlling chemical that literally puts me in a baseline that doesn't let me jump over here, or jump way down there. It kind of just keeps me even keeled. Um, but it was before until I, I started to realize that and use it appropriately for that. Um, my, my goodness, man, I could, I could, you could ask me, Hey, well, um, you think it's going to rain tomorrow? And I would start crying. What are you crying for? I couldn't figure it out, but it was because I had no control over that high and that low. And that's part of a symptom that even most neurologists will not even bring up with patients. They don't know it. They don't know it enough to ask the question and don't know how to answer it when they get that question. Yep, yep, you're right. But I'm glad that we're talking because I think a lot of people who are tuning in today are probably hearing some things about MS that they have not heard for themselves. You also talk about uh, what's so important for our loved ones to know. What do you think is the most important thing our loved ones need to know? And that's one thing that I knew I, I needed to share with my wife so that she understood you know, I'm not mad at you. I'm not angry. I just, you know, sometimes can't control the way I respond. But what are some of the most important things that loved ones need to know? That's a tough question. Uh, it's individual, sure. And it depends on the loved ones. Uh, I'm an only child. My wife is one of five. Every one of her siblings has understood um what I go through uh, to some extent uh, from, from day one, and they've accepted that. Uh, I, I sort of hid it from my, my son for a little while. Um, I wanted him to not have his friends know that I had any kind of a, a problem. I obviously did because they saw me walking with a, a cane and they would ask him, uh, what's the problem with your dad? And I told him to say, just tell him he's got a, a problem with his leg. Um, I didn't want to go into any of the, the details with it. Um, the most important thing I think to know is that um, I'm going to need the understanding of each of you. Uh, and understanding that sometimes I just may not feel like going out to do something. Um, the understanding that I may have to uh, keep score at your baseball game instead of being the coach or the manager of the team. Um, the understanding that I'm not a different person, but I am a, a different person. Um, again, I was lucky in having a wife who was a medical professional who understood um, what I was going to go through. And she has her own, um, having been a PT, she has back problems. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we sort of have to support each other. And that's, that's the message. And I see too often, especially cruising um, internet sites, people whose spouses just don't understand. Right. I don't know how to get them to understand how a person with MS can always get a person to understand and certainly can't always get that person to, to accept. Um, I think, you know, going back to what you said in the beginning, it's being honest with yourself first, then honest with your loved ones. I mean, I, I know how many people who have MS don't talk about things. They just don't talk about things. Um, don't say things to their loved one. You know, this it's is important for that loved one be educated. They correct. need to know what the disease is all about, and that goes for for friends and for employers uh, just as much. I mean, yep. you, if you're going to succeed uh, in keeping a job and having an employer be on your side instead of trying to find a way to get rid of you, that employer needs to know what to expect. Right. Goes back to my being a boss again. I had a, a young woman who I hired uh, at AP many years ago. And a few months, I guess, after I hired her, she came into my office one day and she closed the door and she said, 
I have to tell you something, I have MS. I said, you've told it to the right person. Wow. Uh, but but it, it took guts on her part. But also, if I had not had MS, that would have allowed me as an employer to understand or research and understand what the future held and to deal with it rather than being surprised with it. Employers don't like surprises. Spouses don't like surprises, unless it's a gift. Um, so upfront. Absolutely. Well, one more time, if, if anybody wanted to find out more about your book, give, give me a website of where people can reach you. Well, the book is the Multiple Sclerosis Toolbox. Uh, it's available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook. Uh, my personal blog is the MS Wire, sort of like the old-fashioned wire service that I worked mm -hmm. for. Not old-fashioned anymore, big time into internet. Uh, but the uh, MSWire.com. And then I write once a week also for the Multiple Sclerosis News Today.com website. And they all sort of interact. Well, thank you so much, Ed Tobias, for being a part of the show today. Anything else you want to add, sir? No, I was going to end with it's better to uh, dance in the rain than uh, than to hide from the storm, but I used that line already, so I can't do that. But it's uh, been a pleasure uh, chatting with you, and I'm awfully glad that uh, you gave me the opportunity. Absolutely, sir. Thanks for sharing with all of our listeners. Because, I mean, I think they're going to understand that, you know, again, I, I think the one thing about this illness that, I don't understand why we can't get neurologists or doctors to get is that those words that come out of your mouth when you say the diagnosis should have a hopeful follow-up rather than some of the negative garbage that comes out of doctors' mouths instead. You could say to a person, look, you've got something, I think you have MS, or I'm pretty positive you have MS. That's not a death sentence. You could just say those words there alone would help lift up a person rather than have them go, oh, woe is me. So, you know, I think hearing more people like yourself and hearing conversations between people like you and me, I think our listeners will understand that there is hope out there. This is not as dire as some think it is. We got a problem. Okay. So I say, like I said earlier, get busy living because the alternative is not really something that I think anybody should ever think about. Agreed. Thank you so much, sir, for being a part of the show today. I wish you the best. Uh, you, you always got a home here whenever you want one. Love to chat with you some more in the future. And I got to thank you for on behalf of all of our viewers out there who have tuned in today. So thank you guys for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear feedback, so please send us your comments. Thank you.